Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week, we're bringing back an interview from February to celebrate the return of Mindy Kaling's HBO Max show, The Sex Lives of College Girls. Season two is available starting this Thursday, so that gives you a couple days to catch up if you missed the first season. Go watch it, love it, become obsessed with the super talented Amrit Kaur like I did, and then get ready for season two on Thursday. Enjoy this interview. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, my name is Amrit Kaur, and my current dilemma is my crazy craving of cold ice cream in negative 20 degrees Canada weather in front of the fireplace, which just tends to melt very quickly. Well, this is, in fact, not a dilemma at all. I would say uh, ice cream in front of a fire in a warm house, safe and cozy from the negative 20 degrees outside, is sort of like a creamy and delicious middle finger to winter. You can't keep me from my ice cream winter. Ice cream is a year-round delight, and not even snow and ice and cold weather can slow me down. In fact, I would say your only dilemma is when said ice cream eating is interrupted by a podcast interview. And in fact, you might hear a tiny clink of a spoon on a bowl here or there as this chat gets underway. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation with an up-and-coming actress that I am absolutely convinced is going to be a household name. I just think, you know, she's got that it factor, the comedic timing, everything. And if you have not yet seen the show Sex Lives of College Girls on HBO Max, co-created by my queen of everything, Mindy Kaling, you have to watch. So Amrit Kaur is a standout uh, of the whole cast. She plays Bella Melhotra, who is a boy-crazy... Uh, freshman, crazy about comedy, obsessed with getting to SNL. And she's roommates with Kimberly, who's sort of a book smart church girl who doesn't come from much money and is just open to all these new experiences at, at college. Layton, a rich girl with a secret. And Whitney, a soccer star who sort of starts her college career in a compromising way with a coach. I'm not going to give out spoilers, but the show is hilarious. It's smart. It's risque. Totally binge-worthy. You can get through it super fast. Um, and I was really excited to talk to Amrit Um you know, I want to talk to her now before she totally blows up. I wanted to hear what a life-changing role this has been for her, the audition process, how her traditional, very traditional Indian family, particularly her father, have reacted to her playing such a sex-positive character. Um, also just her decision to pursue a career in acting, um, all sorts of stuff. It was really awesome getting the chance to talk to her, to learn more about her. Uh, I think you guys are going to love it. Enjoy. That's what she said. I'm so excited for this guest because I binged Sex Lives of College Girls about as quickly as I can, considering my limited time. And I had a feeling I was going to love it. Listeners to the pod know my obsession with Mindy Kaling and all things Mindy Kaling. Uh, but this was uh, maybe even a little bit better uh, for someone my age than <laughs> Never Have I Ever, which is a great show. Um, and I did appreciate that the high school was talking about getting boned. But somehow Sex Lives <laughs> of College Girls felt a little bit more apropos to my age group and, and people a little bit older. And 
this is the breakout star of the show for sure. Amrapur, oh. um, who is, I mean, just steals every single scene and is, um, is, a, I mean, you're a revelation. It's it's so fantastic playing Bella Malhotra. And I want to start at the very beginning before you ever even thought about being um, a television star. And you're growing up in Markham, Ontario. So tell us, what is that place like? What is Markham like? Wow, I'm I'm blushing. I've never had that many compliments mm -hmm. squeezed into 20 seconds before. <laughs> wow, thank you for all of that. That's very, very sweet. Um, I take it all with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I'm so discombobulated. I forgot what you just asked me. What did you just ask me? <laughs> Tell me about Markham. Oh, Markham. Oh, you better uh, get used to this. This is going to be every day for a while here <laughs> as people are coming around to, to learning about you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I haven't gotten used to it. I guess. I, I guess. I, I, yeah. Um, Markham is, you know, it's it's a funny little place. It it just got upgraded to a city. I think. A couple of years ago, <laughs> it used to be a town. Um, Congrats. It's very multicultural, primarily Asians, primarily East Asians and Sri Lankans and the few Indians there. So I grew up with a lot of East Asian friends and Sri Lankan friends and black friends. And yeah, it was a very nerdy place because it was it's such an immigrant place. Everybody was high on academia mm -hmm. So hence me being pro nerd that that is my Markham roots and in addition my Indian Indian roots so a mix of mix of both. Yeah. It's Markham. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you if it was diverse because you are a uh, first generation. Um, your parents emigrated to India from Canada before you were born. Um, would you say you follow most of the stereotypes of the child <laughs> of, of East Asian immigrants? Oh God, um, South Asian, South Asian. Um, uh, I'm a, no, no. I'm a very rebellious daughter. I wouldn't say I'm a very particularly good Indian daughter, but I, I am a good daughter. I, I like to be. I like to think I am at least. You'll have to ask my parents about that. I'm always on the verge of shocking them with something I do every other day. <laughs> um, but. But I have the very typical, you know, typical Indian family. We grew up watching a lot of Indian cinema. A lot of the references were there. Gr grew up with Punjabi being my first first language. So I went into theater school and I was like, damn, I have so much to catch up in in, in North American <laughs> film and TV because that's not what we used to watch. Um you know, conservative parents worried about the boys, uh, worried about the girls, mm -hmm. uh, all all that stuff. I I, I had very so that typical, was very stereotypical. I had yeah. very I yeah. had very stereotypical Indian parents. Yes. What did they do for a living? Um, well, they both are insurance brokers. They used to be. Um, teachers and my dad used to be a manager for a company back in India and my sister my sorry my mom who sometimes feels like my sister uh, used to be a teacher mm -hmm. in India but the thing unfortunately which a lot of immigrants experience is when you come and immigrate to Canada your education isn't unfortunately taken as seriously so they found themselves both having to do something that they had never learned but what I admire, especially about immigrant parents, is they have such vigor in 
and lack of entitlement. There's so much learning about hard work without having anything and starting from the mm. beginning. And that's something that I'm so grateful to have learned from my parents. And they, like many other immigrants, uh, immigrant parents started fresh with something that had nothing to do with their profession, their studies, and they've been quite successful. And I've learned about discipline and hard work from them. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a doctor, doctor sister, seven years older. The, <laughs> she's the poster child. <laughs> you know, I'm always like, <laughs> you win, Jasmine. You win. Um, yeah. She's smart, beautiful. She is the doctor. She's, you know, she's all the things. She she makes a check. She she completes a check mark. So I get to be a little bit more, more rebellious thanks to her, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that's the good part about being the younger one. Uh, <laughs> they kind of they get a little looser, or they're like, "Well, we already got one doctor, so I guess we should be <laughs> embarrassed by our actress daughter." Um, so I, you did an interview, and you talked about in high school, um, kind of dabbling uh, and getting your start in in acting and performance as as the captain of the improv team. <laughs> but you said I was not allowed to take drama because I was considered too obnoxious. What does that even mean? Not I was considered too obnoxious. That drama was considered too obnoxious. I think the thing... Okay, was that was then not properly translated in the interview because the interview is written and it says, because I was too obnoxious. And I'm oh, like, what no. does that even mean? Oh, they tell wouldn't me let about you it. The theater. number of things that have not been translated <laughs> properly in interviews. I'm like, oh God, that is not <laughs> what I've said. But tis, tis, tis comes with the world. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. So so your parents thought it was too obnoxious or you thought it was too obnoxious to do standard theater? Oh, no. I, I think the thing with any type of arts is that my parents, especially my father, comes from a small village in India called Hushyarpur. And there just wasn't that education. Uh, to begin with, my father in himself is the first person to get a university education out of all his family. So even that to have a standard education was an anomaly. And then something like the arts for a lot of immigrant parents, they come, they want their children to come to, they bring their children here because they want, you know, a stable job for them, a stable career. So they're just not knowledgeable in what the arts require, the intelligence required. And it's, it's often just thought of, as you know, quite a seductive art form <laughs> and right. Just, right. we're just not educated in knowing the, the degree of training required, the investigation of the human experience, the psychology required, all of that stuff. So that's what my parents thought. And to be fair, I had those judgments too, but I liked it because I had those judgments. I was like, I'm not allowed to do that. I want to do that. I want to be sexual, you know, but, but I was quickly, uh, I quickly learned after going into theater school about the intelligence required about the vigor, the discipline and all of that stuff, which I just was ignorant to before by no fault, just not knowing, not being exposed to it. So what drew you to improv then in high school uh, to the point where you became the captain of, of the improv team? So um, what what was it about that that felt like maybe something you were allowed while pursuing more traditional education? Well, um, we had to take drama in grade nine. And I'm not sure if I did the improv team in grade nine or grade 10, but I know 
in grade nine, I fell in love with, with drama. And I, I had a teacher, Cameron Ferguson, who is now my best friend. <laughs> so funny. Um, I am <laughs> her daughter's godmother slash aunt, <laughs> which who does that? Only a nerd, <laughs> right? Best friends with your drama teacher. <laughs> um, I wasn't allowed to take drama in grade 10 and 11. So because it wasn't considered a serious course or my, my parents didn't understand what it meant. And so because I fell in love with it in grade nine, I asked if I could be a part of the improv team. It was the only form of, of dramatic arts that my school was providing. So, and really thanks to my teacher, Cameron Ferguson, she always saw something in me and she saw that I had some comedic ability and she decided that I would be the captain of the improv team. That wasn't something I decided. I was, she was like, I'm right. They're going to be the captain. Okay, coach. What does that mean? <laughs> you know. So um, but we did right. the Canadian improv team uh, games. We did all of those things. Um, but very much uh, thank you to my first drama teacher, Cameron. Somehow you go from only being allowed to do it as an extracurricular, sort of slipping it in in addition to all of the traditional uh, workload that your parents were okay with, and then you manage to go to to theater uh, school. You go to York <laughs> University and you and you get your BFA. So how how was the transition from oh this is just a fun thing on the side to trying to explain to your parents that you were going to actually major in you know arts and and media and performance? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um... Well, it was scary. It was scary. Um, in when I was in high school, we had to apply. Our guidance counselor told us we had to apply to five different courses uh, in university. So I applied to business, journalism, two sciences, and then theater as a whim. I wasn't even seriously considering it. Mm-hmm. We, we had to do five, and I sort of had this dream in my back back pocket that I never really shared with anybody, and. I shared it with my sister and back my sister is seven years older than me and in a, in many ways has raised me. And whenever something big had to be talked about, I'd be like, Jasmine, you, you got to tell mom and dad. And, and she was um, at the airport headed out for her plane to, uh, to her medical school, which was out of the country. And right before her flight, she was like, okay, dad, everybody let's sit down. Amrith has something to say. No, uh, Jasmine will explain. <laughs> typical Indian kid scared of her parents or you know uh, looking up to her parents and uh, so she definitely took the headway and what I said at the time was that I would take theater school because it would be easy and on the side I would do medical courses so I do a minor in oh sure as one does as As one one does does. just just become a doctor on the side and uh, and so I would graduate with really high grades and I could apply to med school. Of course, that is not what happened. (laughs) I quickly found that (laughs) A, theater school was much harder than I thought because I was ignorant and thought it would be easy. And B, that it was actually something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I... I did not finish my minor in, in science, but that was hard for my parents. It was, it was definitely hard. It was hard for them. It's a refrain I've heard from pretty much every first gen uh, that I work with at ESPN or that's in any sort of um, comedy or theater. And um, 
the good news is if I'm talking to them on the podcast, they've been quite successful at it, which <laughs> lessens the blow. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it, in the moments of, of discovering that you love that and that that's what you want to pursue, it isn't any less difficult for, for you and your parents. Um, I want to hear about the, the Miss World Canada beauty pageant. Oh, no. I saw that on your resume at first. No, but here's the thing. I saw that on your resume at first and I thought, well, yeah, duh. She's got a banging bod and she's super oh. hot. So, of course, she was a beauty pageant queen. But then I was reading about it and it really wasn't you. I, I, I Watching the show, I'm like, yeah, she was probably like super popular babe. Um, and then I was reading about it and you actually thought that you needed to sort of cultivate that side of yourself in order to be accepted as an actress, right? Yeah, I mean... I I, I am by no no means a pageant girl. It's it was it's not in my roots. It's not um, it's not necessarily what I believe in. There, I've maybe only met one pageant girl in my life that really had a platform and was really there to to speak about something important. Her name is Anastasia Lynn, who is a phenomenal human rights activist. But most of the time, it's not for noble reasons. And I was not a noble one of the noble candidates. Um, <laughs> and I was, you know, I think if you asked most actors, if they were truthful, at the bottom of the well, they would say they became actors because they wanted attention because many of them weren't popular because they dreamt of being the girl or the guy that everybody wanted then it's like this this small wound from elementary school or high school that we carry mm -hmm. and I'm not above that I definitely had that wound and <laughs> I still have that wound and I'm like that's the eight-year-old why am I operating through my eight-year-old right now I am an adult um so I went yeah. into theater school justifiably I I used to imagine being Rachel McAdams and at the like teen choice <laughs> awards in the bathroom I'd be like pretend I was this blonde blue-eyed girl and ev evidently I'm not and because that was somewhere right. I didn't see people who looked like me that that weren't the standard beauty type but still beautiful being successful in the arts. I just hadn't seen enough of that. I saw Archie Punjabi and Mindy Kaling who've done, you know, great things for our community, but you could count those people on our fingers. So I still aspired to be, and yes, Rachel McAdams is t extremely talented, but I, I aspired <laughs> to be the aesthetic of Rachel McAdams, which is the problem. Right. So, yeah. um, I mean, I went into theater school to be popular. And it wasn't until third year that I, I interned at one of, uh, one of my, my teachers, they were doing a play, the dumb waiter by Harold Pinter. And I saw them in the live theater doing the nitty gritty process work, like the studio work that I fell in love with not even the final product, but the process of investigation, the intelligence of learning accents, yeah. learning character backgrounds and all of this stuff. And um, that's when I knew for sure. But it wasn't noble by any means. And I had seen growing up uh, with Indian cinema, 
often and almost 100% of the time, it was the Miss Indias that were actresses. So I thought that that's what I had to Mm -hmm. do. And I thought that despite not being the standard beauty, I had to convince somebody that I was the standard Indian beauty, which I'm not. And of course, I didn't succeed at Miss World Canada, A, because I was miserable and I knew I was in conflict with my truth. (laughs) And, And so... I lost my, sorry, I think I got into my ego there and I, I lost my train of thought, but. No, no, that was, that, that was all making a ton of sense. You'd be surprised uh, how many different, uh, any job really in entertainment and media, how many people are pulled from like pageants and it is about yes. the aesthetic. That's the case in my job. It's, it's not, Hey, do you love sports and know a lot about them? It's like, Hey, you were Miss teen, whatever. Do you think if we sat you down and talked to you about sports, you might like them. And then we could put you on your TV because you uh, look nice. it's, it's getting so, a lot better. It's, interesting. it's getting a lot better, but that used to be the case all the time. I mean, it's interesting. Cause I get often now asked about Miss World Canada and I, I still want it to be something and not to say anything <laughs> bad about the, the organization, but maybe, you know, it's a way of universe putting that in my past so I can tell people that art is about talent and intelligence. And I'm forced to talk about it because I had to go through the path of not knowing that because I wasn't taught that. Mm. And, um, all the things, all my first agent meetings, uh, I had my headshot dissected and the, the agent looked at my nose and said, the ratio of my nose to my mouth would not make me a lead actress because my nose is too big. All of these things and had these lists of plastic surgeons for my nose, this big, big loophole, which is so sad This that women of all ethnicities and men too are told that they have to look like something to act. But humans are humans. Right. You don't have to have a certain aesthetic to be an mm-hmm. actor. You just have to be able to tell human stories. And I'm grateful that I've learned that now. And I, I'm still working through that. I still have to get better at, uh, you know, something I'm working on in the present now, uh, coming to terms with my aesthetic and that I don't have to be the standard beauty to have a phenomenal career. Yeah, I actually think you should embrace it. And I say this as somebody who is is much older than you and who had to do and did what I thought was the path to my own career success, which involved you know, talking about fantasy football in really low cut tops and dumb shit uh, that wasn't me either. Cause I had been, a, I had been funny in second city and I wanted to be funny uh, and talk about sports. And instead I had to put a bunch of makeup on and shove right, my boobs up right. for people to notice me. Right. And I was very embarrassed about it too. And there's still pictures that people will ask about and I'll, and right. I'll be embarrassed, but instead you get to tell the, the story about right. what it is to try to make it in a business that, that tells you the wrong things about right. what's valued. And in talking about it from your position of the success that you've had, you actually have a great impact on other people coming up that will then not feel like they have to take the same path. So don't be embarrassed by it. Um, Thank you. I think it's it's also just a cool story. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, so I just want to take a second and and elaborate on what I said to Amrit, because I really do think it's important for women to talk about the experiences that they had coming up and to lift the veil on some of the BS expectations, some of the unfairly rigid beauty standards. Um, And in my case, and in the case of a whole bunch of other women in in sports, the sexual harassment and disrespect that that you endure. Um, And I think by acknowledging why she felt she needed to be in pageants and how the industry appeared to her from the outside, 
Amrit honestly sort of addresses something that so many young women wonder about, maybe even won't pursue their dreams because of. Um, and in my case, it was similar. You know, it's super frustrating to have people now bring up these silly, flirty photos from a fantasy football show that I did 15 years ago that still pop up on Google as if me playing the game is the problem and not the fact that playing the game is required in order to get a chance in this totally sexist industry. At least it was at the time. And I do think it's getting so much better. Um, when I was coming up, it was the wild, wild west of the early internet sports blog. And that culture, um, it was as common to see girls in bikinis and stories about the wives and girlfriends as it was actual sports content. And that culture has evolved a ton. And I think women can work their way into TV, radio, writing gigs without the BS. But it's by no means fixed. Um you know, despite being a former athlete, a top student, a really hard worker who was super ambitious, and my dream was always to entertain and to do comedy and to be funny, I still got funneled through the crappy car wash of, you know, low-cut shirts and flirty dialogue and over-sexualization. And, you know, talking about that honestly and openly can sometimes feel shameful, but it's it does so much to shine a light on what's wrong with the industry. It, it also takes the power from those who try to undermine me or my accomplishments because they can still find a couple pictures with some cleavage from a couple years ago. Um, you know, it, it can be uncomfortable to address or even shameful to think about once you've got some agency and power. But that's kind of the point. Like now that I have some clout and some influence, I need to shout down those hiring practices, those ridiculous beauty standards, um, those difficulties that so many women have in getting into the business and help open the door for more women of different looks and different types to have opportunities and be given a shot. Um, so I think Amrit talking about it is, is powerful and necessary. And the moral of the story is there's no shame in doing pageants, certainly no shame in being a young woman who gets manipulated by a totally system. You just got to turn it into some good by talking about it, I think. Okay, back to the interview. I'm sure you learned some things that you don't even recognize that you carry with you from doing the pageant, whether that's even just being oh kind God. to people that aren't similar and things like that, you know? I learned so, about what, what's plenty important. Plenty to take away. Yeah, <laughs> what's important and what right. really matters to me. I mean, even if I talk about my audition for Sex Lives of College Girls, I my armpits were sweating like no tomorrow. Like the actual <laughs> audition tape is like three inches north and south of right. of armpit sweat, which which maybe once upon a time, the woman who was so vain and thought that acting was about aesthetic would be like, I can't let people know that I sweat. Whereas this time around, I was like, man, I'm a woman who sweats. Everyone does. It has nothing to yep, do with my yep. talent. It happens. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it sounds like something Bella would say. So you know what? It works for the audition. I want to talk about the audition because even though I clearly get that like the world has been in COVID and so much has been done over Zoom and whatnot, I still and I, I recognize maybe, you know, you're you're already on camera. So look at that. You don't even have to like be in a room and then have them watch the tape later. It still was fascinating to me the idea of this huge life pivot, this moment that has now changed your life being conducted over Zoom. So tell me what that was like for you. Um, was it maybe easier to not have to walk into a room with Mindy Kaling and scary, famous, successful people? Um, you got to just be at home or wherever you taped? Oh my God, so much easier. I'm, I'm not a cool person. By no means, I'm not a cool person. If I had walked into a room with Mindy Kaling and Howard, Howard Klein, Justin Noble, I, I would probably mumble my way through it. 
I would try to do a good audition, but I would be so self-conscious. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful to the universe that, that the audition was over Zoom because then I could just fa- focus on my art as opposed to those superficial things. Yeah. So what's crazy about it is you, you auditioned without having the proper visa for the role, but you and your reps were like, let's just give it a shot. Maybe they'll really love her and we'll figure it out. They did uh, discover that you did not have the right visa. They canceled your callback, uh, but later decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to see if we can make this work. So tell me about essentially getting the vibe that they wanted you for this and that you were maybe one of the last one or two for the role. Um, but that it would require actual letters to the U.S. government to convince them that you were worthy, that your talent was so worthy to the greater good of humanity that you should be allowed to, to operate on different rules. Like, I would be like, listen, I get it. Don't worry. Just give the part to someone else. Like, that's a lot of work. Um, but what was that like for you? Oh my God. It's, it's, it's insane. It's, it's, it's funny that to, I mean, that part of it, it's like, you have to take take it as a grain of salt, you know. You you have the government has unrealistic expectations of who they allow into their country into their country, and especially that was at Trump's government. So it's hyper hypersensitive to even South Asians, you know, people of my color or race. Um, but I had to take it all with a grain of salt. I was I was very I was. I kept thinking about it and I I remember at that time I knew I was close and I so wanted the part and I remember writing a letter to my coach at the time who was coaching me through it and coaching my ego through it you know the egoic thing of this will change my life etc cetera, etc cetera. and I, I'd be an artist whether or not this part came or not I I am I will be for the rest of my life but I remember writing to her the day before I knew I was going to get the call that, yes, obviously I'm so, so desirous of this part. But this part, the way it's written, a South Asian American woman who's sexual on screen, who's fighting to be on, on comedy, on SNL, written this way, is going to be groundbreaking for whoever gets the part. So it's a win for the South Asian community in general. And I had to come to term, I had to touch that humility in myself. And of course, if I hadn't have gotten it, I would have cried, of course, but I would have Mm -hmm. rejoiced at the fact that somebody would have been able to tell the story. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Nerd. Nerd. I think this is our youngest word yet in Word of the Week, um, and I believe the first that is wholly American, uh, first appeared around 1950 as U.S. student slang, uh, probably an alteration of the 1940s word, uh, the slang nerd, which meant a stupid or crazy person kind of coming off of the word nut. Nerd first turns up in a Dr. Seuss book from 1950 called If I Ran the Zoo, uh, which may have helped contribute to its rise and it becoming more commonplace. Nerd, of course, being uh, someone who behaves awkwardly around other people, usually has unstylish clothes or hair, a person who's very interested in technical subjects and computers and stuff. Um, But recently, I think us nerds have sort of reclaimed the word. We proudly self-identify as nerds. There's, There's no shame in the nerd game anymore, which I like. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. 
The word of the week is a phrase, oblot reduplication. And yeah, we're talking nerds, so let's get nerdy, folks, okay? Ablot reduplication is the pattern by which vowels change in a repeated word to form a new word or phrase with a specific meaning, like wishy-washy, tip-top, crisscross. So ablot means a change of a vowel in related words or forms, or more specifically, systemic vowel alteration in the root of a word to indicate shades of meaning or tense. And then reduplication is an act or instance of doubling or reiterating. So ablot reduplication is hard to say and sounds tricky, and you've likely never heard of it, but instinctually, you know how it works. It is sort of a mysterious syntax rule that none of us know, but we all know how to use. It tells us that TikTok is right instead of talk tick. Ding dong, not dong ding. And the rule is basically shaped on the shape of your mouth during the vowel sounds. So uh, say aloud, bit, bet, bat, bought, but, and pay attention to where in your mouth that vowel sound happens to figure out how this works. Because the vowel sound moves from the front to the back of your mouth with each word. So, okay, repeat after me. Bit, bet, bat, bought, but further back in your mouth for each vowel. So the order from front to the back is I-A-O. So in the words, if there's an I, it's always first, then an A, then an O. Mish-mash, chit-chat, hip-hop, ping-pong. You can feel it in your mouth. And that's why even new words, like say TikTok uh, for the app, work that way and maybe wouldn't sound right to our ear if they were instead talk-tick. So some ablot reduplication in a sentence. I was chit-chatting with my friend when we heard the pitter-patter footsteps of my ding-dong of a dog who was dragging some knick-knack he found in the toy pile, zigzagging and crisscrossing his way across the room toward us. Now let's get back to the interview. You had done a a fair amount of of other television shows, but this was obviously going to be the first sort of lead where you're one of the big stars. Um, So what? tell me about the moment that you get who called you? How did you find out? Not only that you got the part, but that the U.S. <laughs> government approved your visa. Those are two big things. But what was the moment like when you found out it was yours? Um, now, I can't remember if I got my visa first or if I... I think I got the part first and then the visa stuff happened the second round of visas. Um, I, I can't remember. But when I got the call, I I started crying on the phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. My two, my manager and my agent called me. I, I cried on the phone. I danced. And then my roommate at the time, mm-hmm. who was always naked in her bedroom, for some reason, she decided to keep her clothes on. <laughs> and I was very happy because I just ran into her room and hugged her. And I was like, I got it. I got it. And I, I spent a good five minutes just crying and and then they they told me the details of the contract, and I had at that time said I don't want to know anything about the money, the the details, any type of stuff, because I just want to focus throughout the auditioning process about with the art. I don't want to be thinking about any materialistic yep. thing. I just want to tell the story properly, which they thought was bizarre, but I was adamant on that. Um, and then I asked if I could call them back because I needed to make some important calls. I called my parents crying, mm-hmm. my dad on FaceTime, and I was crying. He was like, 
what happened, beta? Beta means daughter. Calm down. I was like, oh, no, these are good tears now. These are good tears. I got the part. And I got the part. <laughs> um, and then I called my coach, Michelle Lonsdale-Smith, and I uh, said I needed, and I ran around in circles for a good five minutes. And mm-hmm. it was basically just everybody knew I didn't have to say much except for scream and cry. And I just... Right screamed and cried for a long time and called every single person who helped me with lines, every single teacher who had helped me because that type of stuff, it's not like, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't take one person. It takes a village. Every single person who's given me a note to be a better actor, to have better character, everybody's a part of those wins. So I called every single person and then had some alcohol, like a good Indian daughter. In the evening. <laughs> there you go. Did you, um, how long after the screaming and crying and celebrating and drinking, and maybe you didn't, maybe you were like, I got this, uh, but maybe you had a oh shit moment of, okay, yeah, I got it, but the work hasn't even begun yet. That's what's wild about it is they put all their faith and trust in you and then you have to show up and do it and be great. And then people have to watch it and tell you whether it was great and they have to they have to like it and the show has to get renewed. I mean, it's like step one of so many challenges and 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 confidence questions and all of that. So how long until you started to think about the reality of, of being someone who helps create some a show and is a big part of whether it succeeds or not? Oh my God, I think... I think I've always had those thoughts. Uh, I've always had these these aspirations to move thing for move things forward for women of color, women, South Asian women, uh, the LGBTQ community, all of these all of these things. Um, but my coach gave me a week to celebrate. So after a week, she was like, "Why haven't I gotten a coaching in yet for this project?" How long do you want to celebrate? And I was like, ah, Michelle is my coach's name. And so she gave me a note. It was like, before day one of your rehearsals, I want you to read the pilot a hundred times. And then I was like, okay. And then we made, we developed a list of about 50 comedians that I had to research. So watched as many as I could. I still have, I haven't finished all of them. There's so many wonderful stand-up comedians out there that I have so much to learn from. So the work started quite, immediately. And then I, in class, I was, I I did plays, um, that would directly influence my character. I did a play called talk radio, who's a radio host. That's very controversial and very funny. Um, I did stand up. Uh, I did all of these things to prep for my character and I continued acting class three times a week, um, until day one of set. So I had a week off to celebrate and then I started prepping for the part. So you you get to day one of the set. How much time did you get to spend with your co-stars before you actually start shooting? Um, not very much. I mean, we started shooting um, during COVID time, and we were in quite crazy lockdown. So the first time we met each other, we actually had to sit six feet apart, and there was someone that came in with a ruler, and if we weren't <laughs> six feet apart, we'd get oh my COVID. Gosh. <laughs> um, but we tried to find times where we could sit outside. We were all in the same hotel, so we would sit outside uh, at a social distance and we play uno or we're not really strangers which is a great way to get to know each other so we had a couple of sessions together but it was really good in that as our characters got to know each other our we as castmates got to know each other better as well so it was in sync 
Yeah. Um, in an interview, you you told someone, it's a big lie that we've told. North America has put us in this trap that brown women have to be submissive. It follows through to colonialism and white dominance and patriarchy, but that's not true. We're not submissive. We're dominant and we're dominant in bed. And our culture here and in India has a lot of work to do to come back to terms with the reality that we are sexual. Um, that's particularly of note when it comes to characters um, that are Indian. And I, I heard Mindy Kaling talk about Never Have I Ever. And she said, there's a lot of dorky Indian characters, right. but they don't necessarily want to be sex positive and be cool right. and have these experiences. They just want to like study and be nerds. And th- that other side is never told. And that's part of the, the influence for the lead character, Never Have I Ever. Obviously very important here as well. You talked about wanting to tell that story so much. Um, did you feel like growing up, you bought into that idea or at least outwardly pretended like that narrative that you said was a big lie, um, outwardly pretended that it was true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I find that what I've seen with South Asians on film is that we're either extremely exotified or we are completely dorky. And I'd like I'd like yeah, for asexual. Us, yes, <laughs> I'd like to just see <laughs> South Asians as humans, as every other race. We are intelligent. We are sexual. We are aggressive. We are also submissive. We are all those things that other races are allowed to be. All these dualities. And I was taught from the film and TV I saw that, and even just the lack of South Asian representation in Hollywood which also makes me feel, which always also goes to the asexual thing, the lack of South Asian characters who are, who are being sexual on screen. Um, that I too ha- had learned to, to be coy. And that's not how I felt inside. And, right. and it is because of colonialism. It is, you know, a deep rooted year, centuries and centuries of investigation that, have so many reasons that we couldn't necessarily unpack today. Um, And it will take centuries and centuries to keep doing the work to just have the same voice of equality as any other race and gender. But I found myself in those tropes. I find myself always having to tell myself to, it's okay to speak up. It's okay. You mentioned that even amongst friends, you wouldn't always be honest with each other about your your sexual experiences or otherwise, because even with the closest people, it felt as though you sort of had to pretend like none of you were, were doing the things that weren't allowed or weren't spoken of. Yeah, that is true. Um, there is this, this trope of the good Indian daughter, and I joke about it, but that's a real thing. Um, and with my friend circle, who is primarily South Asian, um, and East Asian, but amongst the South Asian groups, um, we were supposed to be virgins. We were supposed to be virgins until the day we married and none of us were, but we just were so ashamed (laughs) to tell the truth that we were sexual. Um, and that was in part what we were taught by our parents, by our culture, by media, all these things. So I hope this show, you know, getting back to the show, that seeing representation of a sex positive uh, South Asian American, that people of my generation with their friend circles are more comfortable talking about sex in a safe way, and it will create more safe spaces.
I think it will for sure. I mean, beyond the obvious of just the character that that you play that is so much more open and and so much more um, mature and positive about this stuff than a lot of characters that we see sort of entering the collegiate spaces. Um, but it is even heightened. I mean, the naked party, for instance, is not uh, the traditional college experience for everyone. And, and I, I loved reading an interview where you said you were nervous the first time you had to kiss someone in an acting scene. And fast forward <laughs> now, your first big role, you're having sex on screen, you're going to naked parties. I want to hear about the filming of the naked party because um, those were all actually just naked ass people around you everywhere. We know that they weren't pulling the trick of, of Hollywood where there's a sock involved because we saw a lot of dick and yeah. vagina. It wasn't yeah. covered up. Yeah. So um, what was that like for you? Um, it was very normal. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, okay. what I mean by that is that yes, when you come in, it's, it's, it's shocking. You see, I saw a lot of dicks and vaginas of different shapes and sizes, which I never have in my life and maybe never will again. So at least I checked that off my list. Um, unless maybe I go to a naked beach one day, which I might. Um, but other than that, we're all professionals, you know, um, my, uh, my colleague and I, Pauline, my co-star and I had packs with each other. If, if at any time we felt uncomfortable or someone else was making us feel uncomfortable that we would have each other's backs. And, um, and we would, we were communicating throughout the day, um, and checking in with each other. And so everybody was there to work. I think we all had a laugh about how funny the situation was, (laughs) but you're, once, once you see a group of bodies for a sustained period of time, at least this is what I've learned, it becomes normal. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Labella literally yeah. says, I guess everyone wore the same outfit today. That's literally what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone wore the same outfit yeah. today, skin. <laughs> yeah. It is funny, like half the time, I think this is about sex and about nudity in general. Half the time I'm like, who cares? It's just like a body that you were born in and it's just sex. And then the other half of the time I'm like, it's, it's a big deal. And there, here's all the reasons why, right. you know, it's funny to sort of vacillate between them depending on the context. But what did your parents think of that? Cause um, you know, your dad, especially coming from this small village in India um, where there's a lot of gender separation, just naturally uh, now, not only is their daughter an actress and not a doctor, but she's mm-hmm. uh, she's in a very sexy show. I mean, I, I make a joke with my dad or he made a joke where he was like, I got a, the, the sick, the sick text, the holy text is the Guru Granth Sahib and the shortened version is called the Gurbani. So he's like, I got to keep the Gurbani with me while I watch this show. And I was like, yeah, you know, watch an episode, <laughs> do a prayer, watch another episode, do a prayer. God will forgive you. <laughs> it's a running joke in the family. Um he was definitely scared, but I, I think what helped him was that I have never been dishonest. I've always been like, hey, this is this this is what's happening. This is you may not agree with it and you may not understand it, but this is my choice. And actually when the first two episodes came out, I first sat down with my parents and it was hard for them. We didn't speak afterwards, you know. It was literally silence mm. and we went mm-hmm. upstairs. But uh at least I can give that to them. I can be honest. And there are certain yeah. things where um, I have to do or make choices. 
and at the risk of my family possibly not agreeing with them or, you know, relatives not agreeing, that there will always be that risk um, if I think something is right. And I felt the story was right. And I never felt like the sexuality was, um, I don't know what the right word is, for no reason or something like that. It, yeah, it, it wasn't was exploitative. Yes. It, it was, was to tell the story. It, yeah. was, it was tasteful. Um, and, and, and from there on end, I can just be honest and everybody can have the reaction they have and the bullets will come. But all I can be responsible for is my honesty. You're challenging their expectations in many ways. Um, yeah. But hopefully it ends up feeling like it's worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. And I, I do have to applaud both my parents. You know, they, they showed up to the premiere and I was doing Bhangra and half my um, my boob popped up, popped out of my dress and my dad was a trooper and still danced with me at the premiere. Um, my father and I have had a lot of very interesting conversations as a result of the show um, about yeah the, the lies told between child and parent in North America, in the South Asian community. And so that's, that's the most important thing and everything, at least discussion is happening. So that I'm very proud of. For sure. Well, and to your point, the character you're playing and and who you are and these interviews that you do is going to be incredibly useful for so many people in the conversations that they want to have with their families and an openness that they're seeking that maybe they haven't been brave enough to seek out. Um, I have a couple quick speed rounds for you. Um, Have you met anyone that you've been particularly crazed about getting a chance to meet because of the show or the interviews and things that have come after? Mindy Kaling is, is, is that person so far? Yeah. I mean, that checks out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah. When I met Mindy, I basically chased her down a hallway to stop her. She was trying to leave somewhere uh, like a total (laughs) Looney Tune. Star Trek short treks. Tell me about that. Did you film that before or after sex lives? Before. Um, before. So did that feel like the first big thing? That did feel like the first big thing. Yeah. It's, it's the biggest set in Canada. So I was very grateful to have that. And I worked with a man, uh, Anson Mount, who's, who's such a phenomenal leader. He, he, I learned so much about leadership from him. Like there were times where the cinematographer was holding the camera for too long and he would just say, Hey, let's, can we take a break for the cinematographer? Not for me, but can he, and just leadership is about caring about everybody. And I, I learned a lot about that from Anson. Uh, not to date myself, but I went on a date with Anson Mount like 20 years ago when I lived in LA. As ah, random as that is. Uh, small world story. I saw him pop up on your Instagram <laughs> telling a story about how much he loved working with you and you were this up and coming. I was like, hey, that's Anson. I went on a date with that dude. Um, Lucky woman. What's next? Do you have anything in the works? Yes. Well, very nice guy. Very nice. <laughs> um, what What's next for you? Um, do you have a project in the works already? I'm working with two people from the company I work at, Graceman Arts Company, to uh, put up a play called Tape um, sometime next year, which is the thing I'm working on right now. Other than that, I have a series I'm writing um, and then prepping for Sex Lives again. Awesome. That's just a couple of things, producing, writing, acting, all the things. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations. Before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing everybody does before they leave and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. 
the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your career is canceled. You can't do anything in writing, acting, producing. What job do you do? Journalism. Love it. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, I had like so many thoughts. Uh, <laughs> lied about going to a party to my parents in high school and um, said it was a school function. My mom was coming back to pick me up and the cops were there because people had drank too much and I found a way oh, for her no. not to pick me up <laughs> and get dropped home, but I was very scared. <laughs> there you go. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Soccer just came up in my, came up in my head. I would love to be. <laughs> okay. That, in Why another not? lifetime, it would be journalism or soccer. That would be <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Kernan Culkin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. From oh. Succession. Kieran Culkin. Yeah, I've not Culkin, started watching sorry. Succession. And everyone's like obsessed with him and that show. I've got to get on it. He's phenomenal. Um, number. Yeah, I've heard that. He's just. Uh, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Um, hair everywhere on the ground. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> I also don't like when strangers' hair touches me. I don't know why. Like just you know, just me. my own hair. Um, my own hair on the ground is my your pet own hair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, number six. What's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my god! Uh, university. I was trying to dance with a group of friends to this re uh, to this Beyonce choreography choreography, and I did a move. My pants ripped in front of like. 60 people and everybody <laughs> came out and laughed at my oh, no. face including the guy <laughs> the hottest guy at school that i really wanted to date oh, of course who i did end up dating of after course. yes yes there you go yeah <laughs> you just got a preview the goods <laughs> oh <All right>. god <laughs> oh that's great um number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve oh i i get very preachy or righteous is something, um, and it definitely comes from insecurity. Um, and I, and I get to this know-it-all place and because I haven't necessarily dealt with the wounds of insecurity. So that's the way I try to get on top by being mm. preachy. So that I'd like to just listen more and not necessarily chime in all the time, which I've probably failed at in this interview. I hear that. Yeah. Yes. Ditto. Um, <laughs> number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Madonna. Oh, killer. Amazing. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh God. What does that even mean? I thought of Miss World Canada. That was the first thing because we've talked about it so much. <laughs> I'm like thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give it to you. So that's a <laughs> tough one for everyone. Uh, finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Uh, brave, intelligent, um, service. Mm, those are good. 
Who should I have on this podcast? Could be anyone from anywhere in any field that you find interesting. Hmm. I mean, there's so, so many people, but I'd love to hear more from Adam Driver. Okay. That would be a great one. He's not a huge fan of interviews, so I'll have to put a little work into getting that one, but I'll work on it. <laughs> I'm not surprised I'll, I'll, I'll that he's not that. a great fan of interviews. <laughs> yeah. Most most artists are shy away from inter- interviews. Yeah. He just wants to do the work, which works for most of us. But mm-hmm. thank you so much. I'm so excited to see what you do next. I'm so excited for the next season. And, and just, I think you're such a star. Um, it's just going to be so fun to watch everything that you do. Thank you, Sarah. This is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. It was so collaborative. And Thanks. I, and I appreciate I, that. I felt very comfortable. Thank you. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for rants, raves, and everything in between. Sometimes I'll tell you to read something, watch something, listen to something, share a great story, whatever's on my mind. And this week, a fun little break from all of my Super Bowl prep and the pageantry leading up to the big game. There's a new Netflix show called Murderville. And the gist of it is that Will Arnett is a murder detective and he gets paired with a new partner in each episode. And that partner, that actor or person is not given a script. They have to improv their way through the scenes. And at the end, they have to guess who the murderer is in the story. So Conan O'Brien, Marshawn Lynch, Ken Jong, Annie Murphy, there's a whole bunch of really fun people who co-star in each episode as the new partner. But the best part of the show, episode number one, the safe word that Will Arnett's character gives Conan O'Brien in a scene is titty nope. That's right. A word of the week from this very podcast. Titty nope. A small collection of things left over, like, you know, crumbs left on a plate. So hearing titty nope out in the wild was a damn delight. And so is the show. So you should go watch it. And of course, go watch Sex Lives of College Girls. Binge it straight through. Go see my guest and how fabulous she is. Um... So Sex Lies of College Girls and then Murderville is the Will Arnett show on Netflix. Oh, I'm also going to see um, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes in a live show of their podcast Smartless this week. So if you don't listen to Smartless, also listen to that. Um, and then later this week, I've got Eddie Vedder and Glenn Hansard doing a show Then I'm off to the Super Bowl in L.A. with Gatorade. So it's going to be a killer, awesome, amazing week. And I hope I hope yours is, too. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe and follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. uh, And give me a review. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 